Chris and Jenny and uh, hearing uh, Ralph speak about the hymns also. And, and, uh, but uh, if you've been here for a little while, and some of you, this may be your first time, some of you have only been here a couple times, um, uh, we have probably had an opportunity to disappoint you. Um, matter of fact, uh, uh, Pastor Josh, our lead pastor, uh, who's uh, currently on, on uh, the last of his vacation, uh, often says, can, I, can you tell me how I can disappoint you at a rate you can handle? Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and so we've, we've done that, and sometimes we get ahead of that rate uh, sometimes. But I, and I, as I look out into different eyes, I know that some of you have had opportunities to be disappointed with me. And, and, and with us as your pastoral team. And, 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 but I've, I also know that's, that many of you have been so gracious to forgive and to, uh, and, and, and to even overlook uh, some of these things. I know I, I look and I see so many of you who we've ministered together in different ways. Uh, I've wa- walked through some really difficult times uh, together, uh, difficult times for me and for my family, uh, difficult uh, times for you, and, uh, and, and uh, people who have, uh, who maybe are still disappointed a bit, and, 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 uh, or, or who, have, uh, who have, have some good reason to, to have a bone to pick, uh, with me or with, with, with several of us, and then between yourselves uh, still, some, some, some friction. But man, I am just so overwhelmed by how gracious God has been in granting us opportunities to forgive uh, one another as well. And, and as I think about this way of serving together and working together and disappointing each other and fighting with each other and, 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 and repenting and asking forgiveness and apologizing and giving forgiveness and going through that all over again, it, when we say we're a family, it sounds a lot like a family. Um, and, uh, and, a, and a good, healthy family, I think, looks a lot like that. And so right now we've got um, a, uh, uh, well, um, four of our, uh, our uh, folks are driving down to Pennsylvania uh, to pick up three more members of our family, uh, the Foos family. So uh, uh, Michael, who's going to be our new family pastor, and his wife Shelby, and their seventh, seven-month-old uh, son, Judah. And, uh, and I just, I, I'm so looking forward to, to welcoming them into our family. And, and disappointing them at a rate we can, they can handle, I hope. Um, but, but welcoming them in. And, uh, and what a pleasure it is to, to know that we are calling them in, into that. And uh, the, the, uh, the text we're going to be in today, James chapter 4, uh, which J, uh, Jason read earlier, uh, um, uh, ver- verses uh, uh, 10 through, I'm sorry, 11 through 17. Actually, we didn't read through those. But James chapter, uh, he read, read uh, James chapter 4, 11, and 12. We're going to go all the way to 17. Uh, they talk a bit about the t- tough things uh, that a family goes through, a family in Christ. We'll be, so that's where we're going to be uh, today. So if you'll turn in your scripture to James chapter 4, uh, verses 11 through 17, and uh, let me pray as we do that. Dear Lord, uh, you call yourself our Father uh, because you are. Um, and, and you call us your children. 
and, uh, and, and that implies family. He calls us the, the bride of Christ. Uh, Lord, we are, uh, we are a family in, uh, in, in so many of the wonderful ways that you've, you've created family. And we are a family in so many of the, the, the tough ways, that, even the sinful ways that, that, the, uh, that our passions, our, our, our embracing of the world uh, lead other families into. And, and Lord, we thank you for the way that you use this all for your glory. Uh, may we truly grow together uh, tighter and tighter in, into a, a family that truly glorifies you. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So again, we're in James chapter 4. We've been in uh, James for a couple months now. And uh, I read this uh, summary of uh, uh, recently in one of the commentaries of chapter 3, uh, really in, into uh, the beginning of our passage here. And, and this is what that summary said about um, what's going on in the churches to which uh, James is writing. It's a bitter, selfish spirit has given rise to quarrels and disputes about certain matters in the church. These disputes were apparently conducted, as they usually are, with a notable absence of restraint in the use of the tongue, including perhaps cursing and denunciations of one another. Such behavior is nothing more than a manifestation of a worldly spirit. It must be replaced by the wisdom from above with its meekness, reasonableness, and peacefulness. This flirtation with the world must be seen to be incompatible with God's jealous desire to have his people's wholehearted allegiance. Yet God is willing to turn and bestow his favor if sinful pride can give way to deep-felt repentance and sincere abasement before him. And that last part of, of this deep repentance, uh, of this just lowering ourselves, humbling ourselves, uh, before him is how uh, Don, one of our lay elders, finished his sermon last week with verses 6 through 10. James uses over these past chapters some really harsh uh, language and, 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 and difficult images uh, to address these problems, these attitudes that are going on within the churches. He calls out the worldly wisdom as demonic their practices as vile, their actions as murderous, and their characters as adulterous. And the consequence of all of this is to be in enmity to God. That hurts. But again, there's hope. As we heard last week, God gives more grace, and he promises to lift those up who choose what Don called to fight the battle we cannot lose. That's by submitting ourselves to God, humbling in repentance before his presence. Yet despite these words of encouragement, James isn't done yet with calling out sin in the church. And he, and he calls out these sins that, for which we need to repent in dust and ashes, is how Job would, would say it. In today's passage, he decries the sins of slander, judgmentalism, lawlessness, greed, boastfulness, arrogance, and neglect. In a nutshell, he tells the church, you deny God's authority when you speak slander and judgment. You deny God's authority when you speak in vain ambition. And you deny God's authority when you speak in arrogance. 
Again, you deny God's authority when you speak slander and judgment, when you speak in vain ambition, or when you speak in arrogance. So in verse 11, chapter 4, verse 11, he says this, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you are a judge of the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He was able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? If you have a translation like the NIV, verse 12 might say, do not slander a brother. It's or do not slander one another. It's the same use of the Greek we see in 1 Peter chapter 2.12 and chapter 3.16. But in those passages, Peter is speaking about people outside the church judging, slandering people inside the church. And while we might not like that kind of persecution, that's what we've been told by Jesus to expect. If we're going to follow Christ, we are going to be persecuted. We are going to be judged and slandered. But what James is speaking of here is something different and far worse. It's not enemies outside the church who are slandering God's people, but it is brothers and sisters in Christ who are slandering and judging fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And this ought not to be so. But sadly, it's just as true today as it was 2,000 years ago when James wrote this letter to the churches. In a book I just read recently, Francis Chan writes this, We currently are the most divided faith group on earth, and there isn't a close second. If you think I'm exaggerating, name another religion with more than two or three factions. We have thousands of denominations and ministries, each believing their theology and methodology is superior. The saddest part of this is that our Savior was crucified to end our divisions. He commands us to be united, and he says we will, unite, or we will impact the world when we become one. This judgmental division isn't just between denominations, right? It's between congregations within those denominations, and it's between groups and factions within those congregations within those, the, those denominations, and it's between individuals and the people of God, their fellow brothers and sisters within those congregations, those groups, and, and it's all between people who claim Christ as their identity, who, the same Christ who was sent to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And so like the Christians to whom James wrote, we who identify in the Christ Jesus who calls us to be one, even as he and the Father are one, we make divisions amongst ourselves. and We become judges with evil thoughts. We let our tongues loose, right? Like flames, they stain the whole body. They set on fire the entire course of life because our tongues are set on fire by hell. And the same mouths, James says, that, that pour forth praise to, to God our Father, speak curses over the, if, if we praise for two hours on Sunday, over the next 160 plus hours, we pour curses on people who are made in the image of God. These things ought not to be so. 
And that should be enough for us to fall back in shock and repentance, to repent in dust and ashes. We, we, to think that our words could curse people who are built in the very image of their Creator. That they create division. That they stain not just our body. He's talking about the plural body. That they stain the body of Christ. That they reveal the double-minded, adulterous nature of our hearts. And in, in my defense, I might say, well, I'm simply standing up for righteousness. I'm fulfilling the law. I'm speaking truth. I imagine the first readers of this letter might have felt the same way. Some of them might have asked, James, are you saying that we shouldn't speak out against heresy, against lies and false teachings? Are you saying I, I can't speak out against injustice, unrighteousness, and false practices? Are you saying I can't stand up to those who are doing sinful things? And I think James might answer, of course not. What do you think I'm doing with this letter? I, I'm, I'm condemning false teachings and false practices. I've been doing it since the first page. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the same James who, who condemned speaking evil against one another, speak, uh, slandering one another, judging one another, is the same who said, resist the devil. The same Jesus who said, judge not, lest you be judged, is the same one who said, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell him his faults. God commands us through his scripture to speak out against injustice and even to judge. For instance, Proverbs 31 says, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. In Romans 12, Paul calls us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that by testing we may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In his third letter, John wrote about a man named Diotrephes who was speaking wicked nonsense against them. And, and he, he condemns him. And he, he even says that he hopes to travel there so that he can co confront him face to face. Jesus thought, taught that we would, we would be able to discriminate, to judge between good and false teachers by their fruits. There is no doubt that we who are called by the name of Jesus Christ, with whom there is neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free, there is not male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We should speak out against racism in all its forms as a sin against the God who breathed life into all mankind. We should speak out against abortion as a sin against the creator of all life. We should speak out against cruelty and abuse. Of what what that, that, that evil is in us declaring people who have been created in God's image to be other than what he created them to be. We should condemn the practices, as, as James does in the next chapter, of the rich oppressing the poor or defrauding the poor. We should speak out against the evils of fascism, against Marxism, consumerism, jingoism and nationalism, and other isms that seek to make divisions in the body of Christ that cause us to be judges with evil thoughts. 
We should call out as heresy, lies, and deceptions, the teachings that say that there is any other God than the one described in these scriptures, or that there is salvation in any other name than Jesus Christ, or that there is another gospel than the one proclaimed here. We should condemn as sin also all slander and speaking evil against one another. And we should start this by following Jesus' command to start, right, by taking the log out of our own eyes. Today, not tomorrow, do this today. Think back about your words from the past week. How, how did that phone call go, that difficult phone call go? How did it go afterwards when you hung up the phone and you stopped speaking to that person, but maybe about that person? Have you gossiped? Have you slandered or otherwise spoken evil against someone? But let's not stop there. I challenge you to go back over what you've written or typed. A text, an email, a post on social media, comments on a news story or a photo this week. Can you honestly say that you've kept yourself to helping yourself and others reveal, repent from, and access forgiveness for sin rather than judging sinners. That you haven't torn down brothers and sisters that you should have been building up. God says in Leviticus chapter 19, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Can you honestly declare yourself innocent of vengeance and grudge bearing? Even for this past week, I can't. And for those of us who can't declare ourselves innocent of that, Pastor James is not done with us yet. He says that by slandering a brother or, or judging one another, that we are slandering, we are speaking evil against the law and judging the law. And this would have stung his audience, particularly because this is, these are Jewish Christians, right? Raised in the law, raised to think of the law as, as God's law, because it is, right? As, as important. It's what they found their, their identity in. And he says, you're not doing the law. You are judging it. You are speaking evil against it. He says, when we, are, when we do these things, we are denying the authority of God as the only lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. He is God. We are not. And when we do this, who are we to usurp his authority and judge our neighbor? The scripture talks about another person who speaks slander against and seeks to judge the people of God. In his revelation, John speaks of someone who accuses Christ's followers day and night. He does that before God. He speaks evil. He slanders them before their creator. He is the one Jesus calls a liar and the father of lies, the one who comes only to kill and, and steal and kill and destroy, who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Jesus says he was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. 
But who are we to judge our neighbor? It's a rhetorical question James asks, but Jesus will answer it himself before James even writes this. If we are joining in the work of the devil by speaking evil against one another and judging one another, Jesus' answer to James' question is this. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. How? Just as we deny God's authority when we slander one another or judge one another, we also deny his authority when we speak in vain ambition. Continuing our text, Come now you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. If we were to write a book called the most quoted verses of the Bible, Proverbs 16.9 might be in there. It says, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And that verse could also go in another book that says, the verse is most quoted and least believed. As I wrote in this, this section of, of the sermon, I realized I stand guilty of that, of vain ambition. I am a control freak. I, I have been comfortable flying a single-seat fighter in combat, supersonic, ridiculously low and ridiculously high altitudes. And I am afraid of heights. I can't even get on a short ladder without trembling because I'm a control freak. I feel competent in, I've shown competence in very dangerous situations on the ground. And yet my anxiety of crowds was manifested even on this trip that Josh and I went to where the crowds were all Christian pastors. And I'm freaking out in anxiety about it. I enjoy planning budgets and making financial plans, but I get anxious when I balance a checkbook. I, I, I get anxious when I split a bill between friends. How can I be so confident in some of these and so anxious in others? It's because in the cockpit or the hostile confrontation or even financial plan, planning, I feel like I have control in my hands subject to my competency, while in other situations I realize the truth that I'm not in control of anything. I want to be in charge of my life. I want to be able to say what I do. I want to say when and where and, and how long and what I will do and what the results will be. And while I have memorized and even quoted Proverbs 16, verse 9, I often live as if I don't believe that verse to be true, or at least that I wish that it weren't. If I'm honest, I often live as if it read, the heart of man plans his way and establishes his steps. But the only way for me to write that that way is to write the Lord out of it. And that's exactly what I do when I speak in vain ambition. I attempt to write the Lord out of my life. Is there anyone else that's in the same boat with me? It's not wrong to make plans. In Luke 14, Jesus exhorted people to count the cost of discipleship. 
and he held as normal the, the planning one would do when building a tower or when going out to face an enemy. And if you'll turn with me to Proverbs uh, chapter 16, about the middle of your Bible, where the verse I just quoted, Proverbs 16, 9, is from, we'll see a lot more about what godly planning looks like. So Proverbs 16, uh, we'll read the first nine verses. The plans of heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs his spirit. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for and by the fear of the Lord. One turns away from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. This passage contrasts the the humble and and, and godly planner with the arrogant. The person who would make God honoring plans looks for answers from the Lord understands that that what looks right in his own eyes may not look right in God's. That these plans are to be committed to God's glory and his purposes, not ours, to please God, to be executed in his righteousness, in his justice, rather than in the wisdom of the world, and always yielding to God's direction. James is not condemning those who would plan, or even those who would trade and make a profit. He is condemning plans that are made in arrogance, presupposing that we know uh, in our determination of our path, our future, our direction, for a culture like ours that celebrates rugged individualism. And I love the speeches of Teddy Roosevelt, but our culture so values rugged individualism over the gospel of Christ. We value being a self-made people. And for us, these are hard words to swallow. We want to trust in our own abilities. We want to trust and be lauded for our own accomplishments. To sit back and say to ourselves, as as we heard in the Scripture earlier, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And to this, God says, you fool. And James says, come now. Who do you think you are? What do you think you know? This is arrogance. Yet while James writes against those who would take pride in their own abilities and their own industry and accomplishments, we've got to be careful about reading too much into these words that he is speaking out against ability and gifts and industry and accomplishments. On the contrary, he holds up as an example of uh, those who are called blessed, right, for being steadfast under trial. He holds up Abraham and Rahab, righteous before God, with faith, active alongside their works, and completed by their works, their industry, their accomplishments. God has no problems with us being industrious, working, 
engaging in a trade, making a profit. In fact, he commands us to do so. In Ecclesiastes, we, we read, I perceive that there is nothing better for them that, than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Proverbs 14, in all toil there is profit, but mere talk leads only to po poverty. In Ephesians 4, we see that productive work is a, a part of God's transforming work in our lives for his purposes. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with those in need. Further in Colossians 3, we read that when we work here on this earth, we are serving the Lord. And whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So it's not plans, it's not work, or even profit itself that are evil. In fact, they are God's gift to mankind, given for God's purposes and his glory. What James is condemning is when we assume that the, the place of God in making our own plans to match with our own ambitions, determining our own steps to, to serve our own purposes and spending our own profits on our own passions. Because when we do so, we speak in arrogance and we deny God's authority and we take it for ourselves. This is not humbling ourselves before the Lord. Continuing in our text, James chapter 4, verse 15, says, Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. Again, it's not that you shouldn't do this or that. It's that we should understand that it is the Lord's will that matters and that it is he, not we, who has the power to save and to destroy, to know what hold, tomorrow holds and to determine our steps. When I read this, I, I, I like to take a pause in this, in, in this verse. It says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live. Forget about this or that. We've got to start with, it. the Lord's got a will for me to breathe in my next breath. If the Lord wills, we will live. Our next breath, our continued living, is in God's hands. It's subject to God's will. And if he wills that we do live, it is also under his will that we submit ourselves in humility to what the this or that is that we will do speaking against one another, judging one another, asserting our own plans, all of this is denying God's authority over our words, our thoughts, and our actions. And it stands in contrast with the preceding verses, which call us to submit to God, draw near to Him, and to humble ourselves before Him. Anything short of that humility, James writes, is us boasting in our arrogance, and all such arrogance is evil. And it's evidence that we're trying to turn back to our old father. This far into the sermon, however, there is a good chance that I haven't told you anything you didn't already know. 
None of this is new news, right? We know that we're not supposed to slander one another. We know that we're supposed to instead, right, to encourage one another and build one another up. We know we're not supposed to judge one another. Lest we be judged, for with the judgment we pronounce, we will be judged. We know we're not supposed to make plans apart from God, but that we're supposed to acknowledge Him and trust Him to direct our paths. Yet, we continue to do that which we know to be evil, and we don't know, we don't do that which we know to be good. We speak evil against one another, we judge one another, and in so many ways, we boast in our arrogance, denying God's authority. And so in verse 17, James tells us that when we know the right thing to do and fail to do it, this is sin. And again, this is not news, right? Adam and Eve knew that doing the wrong thing, knowing what was right and failing to do that was sin. That the desiring to be gods instead of worshiping God was sin. Abraham and Sarah knew that that they should wait for the Lord to fulfill his promises, but they took it into their own hands. They knew the right thing, or Saul knew that the right thing to do was to wait for for Samuel and, and to present the sacrifice, yet he failed to do it. Pilate knew that the right thing to do was to release Jesus, but he failed to do it. And even Paul, right, the apostle of Jesus Christ, laments in Romans 7, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. This sinful tradition of failing to do what we know to be right continues with us today. And and to paraphrase Paul, O wretched people that we are, who will deliver us from these bodies of death? You see, real faith isn't about just about what we know. It isn't just knowing who Jesus is. It's not just about knowing Scripture well. It's not being experts in theology, and it's not even believing all of it to be true. It's important to know and believe the truth of the gospel, but as we heard just a few weeks ago, even the demons believe these truths, and they shudder. And real faith isn't just about doing all the right things according to God's commandments or not doing the wrong things. Obedience is important. It is an essential part of disciple-making. Jesus talks about it when he, when he commands his, his disciples to go and make disciples. But there are people who do very good things, who, who are very good people by the world's standards, who do a lot of the right things and avoid doing a lot of the wrong things, and yet they are going to hell because they do not have real faith in the only Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus even told us a parable about such a person He said, who said, God, I am so thankful that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I I give tithes of all that I get. He was, by the measure of this world, a very good man. And Jesus said he wasn't justified before God. And then a little bit after that, a man came up and said of the requirements of the law, all these I have kept since my youth. Yet instead of following Jesus, he went away sad. 
So if it isn't what you know, and it isn't just what you do, you might rightly ask, then who can be saved? And it's a good question because people asked Jesus that very same question right after that man walked away. And Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So real faith doesn't come through knowing enough. It doesn't come through being good enough. It comes when we stop fighting the battle we can't win, which is we stop chasing and submitting to the flesh and its passions and desires, and we start fighting the battle we can't lose. We submit our lives to God. We humble ourselves before him, throw ourselves at his feet and trust in his mercy. And when we do, we find that what is impossible with man is possible with God. Again, like I said earlier, think back about this past week. Let's say from about this time last Sunday. Think about the words that you, you spoke, the ones you thought, you texted, you typed on social media. Were they words that bear evidence of God's overwhelming mercy, grace, and love? Or did they include name-calling, gossip, discouragement, meanness, pride, anger, bitterness, wrath, lies, slander, or other wickedness? Think back on the plans you made this past week. Did they start end and overflow with a dependence on God's guidance, his provision, his purposes, and his glory? Or were they made with your own wisdom, your own desires and passions, your own agendas and purposes for your glory? Think back on your actions. Did all that you did give glory to God in humble obedience to his will? Or did you find yourself giving in to the temptation and desire that gives birth to evil, that brings forth death? Be honest. Are you denying God's authority over your words, your plans, and your actions? And are you following your adulterous hearts by submitting to the world instead? If so, and I'll paraphrase another movie, is aren't you tired Aren't you tired of needing to push people down so that you can be pushed up? Aren't you tired of judging those around you, hoping that you might be able to escape judgment yourself? Aren't you tired of striving for your dreams, your desires, your plans? Aren't you tired of trying to play God? Aren't you tired of fighting a battle you can't win? To those of us who are tired with this rat race, Jesus calls us to enter into that battle that we cannot lose. It says, be still. Know that I am God. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. More than that, I will dwell with you. You'll be my people. I'll be your God. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When we humble ourselves before that gentle, good Savior, in real faith, we learn that in faith, we can learn to submit our tongues. 
We can learn to submit our plans to Christ, and we can learn to set our confidence in Christ. So if you're tired, are you ready to humble yourself before the Lord? Let's pray. You are God. I am not. You, you are the creator, the starter, the finisher. It is all about you. And uh, Lord, I, I just uh, ask your, your forgiveness as we confess that, that the way we, we speak, uh, the way we plan, the way we act, the way we think, is often not about you. And it reveals more about the father of lies who still strives for us. The father of lies to whom we, we still are so tempted to turn back towards. Lord, thank you that you promise that you will transform us. That you will, if we will just humble ourselves before you, that you will exalt us, that you will make us like you and, and not like the world. But I confess that my words are, are often not true and, uh, and that I tear down rather than building up. I confess that, that, that we, we make plans in arrogance and we, uh, we seek to to justify them uh, before you rather than uh, seeking to establish them in you. And we, we confess that, that our actions because of this are, are so often for our glory and not yours. Lord, thank you that you are the one who transforms, who, who forgives, who redeems, who gives more grace, who, who showers mercy on us, who lavishes it on us. Uh, May we live as if we know that to be true. We pray this all uh, in the power of your Spirit and in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.